When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you may be seated. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant says the Lord. The days at the time of this prophetic utterance were dark and foreboding. The northern kingdom had already succumbed 150 years before that to the Assyrians. Judah had experienced Babylonian um, invasions three times and finally were taken uh, into exile. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple had occurred. Their political independence was gone. Their land had been confiscated. Many had died. And I wonder if many didn't want to die instead of endure the misery of occupation. Everything that could go wrong for Israel went wrong for Israel while Jeremiah was a prophet. It was a time when their culture was upended. It completely changed. People had to uproot, take their belongings and walk to Babylon, a place where no temple existed. The people of Israel were God's people and the temple was their identity and it was gone the law and order of their society completely upended. Their landmarks had been torn down. Their people slaughtered. Grief, collective grief was there every day. We can imagine that their hope was at a low point. Everything that they thought life was about was ripped away from them. They understood Jeremiah's words that they were true. I mean, they were living the plucked up, the overthrown, the destroyed, and the break down, which makes his next words even better. Jeremiah speaks of days that are surely coming. That word surely in the Hebrew t takes the meaning of behold, look, and see. My husband, Michael, loves to watch rockets go off, and when they do, he runs out in front, and invariably, he's yelling back, Patricia, Patricia, come and look and see, look and see. That's the idea of this word. Come, here, quick, look and see. I will build and plant what has been destroyed and plucked up. He's rallying them to look beyond what they are experiencing, to trust that the God of their ancestors is still active in their destiny, even though it looks like a cold, dark night. I happened upon an article the other day. It was about William Shatner, you know, Captain Kirk, the man of sci-fi, of Star Trek, the man who boldly goes where no man goes in his USS Enterprise. Well, he wrote a book, and it's called Boldly Go, Reflections of a Life of Awe and Wonder. 
And in it, he reflects on his actual voyage of going into space on Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, October 2021. He was 90 years old when he went. And he was surprised, he wrote, of what his reaction was when he got there. When Shatner got into space, he hurriedly looked down through the window to the planet Earth, end quote. I could see the hole that our spaceship had punched in the thin, blue-tinged layer of oxygen of Earth. It was as if there was a wake trailing behind where we had just been, and just as soon as I noticed it, it disappeared. I continued my self-guided tour and turned my head to face the other direction into space. But when I looked in the opposite direction into space, there was no mystery, no majestic awe to behold. All I saw was death. I saw a cold, dark, black emptiness. It was unlike any blackness you can see or feel on earth. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I turned back toward the light of home. I could see the curvature of the earth, the beige of the desert, the white of the, of the cloud, the blue of the sky. It was life, nurturing, sustaining life. He said, everything I thought was wrong. Everything I had expected to see was wrong. It was among the strongest feelings of grief I've ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm, nurturing earth of below filled me with overwhelming sadness. It filled me with dread. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. William Shatner went on to muse that life on earth was being destroyed by human hands, and when it's all gone, and it will be, all that's going to be left is cold, dark space. His hope was dashed. Everything he thought life was about was ripped away in an instant. What he had hoped to see, what he had faith to see, was an illusion. And there was no Jeremiah around to hear him say, Behold, look and see. The days are coming, says the Lord, when God will build and plant again. The surety of the future is in God's hands. In the midst of Israel's demise, hope was given. That's the biblical narrative over and over and over again. And that hope today is for us, church. I know people in this congregation that are not living in their homes because they've been damaged so much by Ian. People who have lost loved ones near and dear, and they are grieving I know people who have medical issues and those medical bills just keep on stacking up and they don't know how in the world they're going to get out from under it. 
I know people who have lost their jobs, people who have had to have too many jobs, the collective grief of COVID, that COVID nightmare of two years is still not over. The wars and the rumors of wars that we hear, children who are far away from their parents, broken relationships, the list could go on and on. In the midst of demise, God gives us hope. In verse 31, we have a second, the days are surely coming, says the Lord phrase. It begins to describe how God is going to build and plant people. He says, the day's coming, I will make a new covenant. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. Now, a covenant was common in the ancient Near Eastern for people who formed, it was used to form relationships between people who were not blood relatives. It expressed a sacred kinship bond between two people or two individuals. Many times it was a socio-political bonding between groups or individuals. God's covenants are prominent in salvation history. Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic, Davidic. Well, in Jeremiah 31, our text, the term new covenant is made for the first time, indicating something is different. Up to this point in salvation history, God, in his great love for his people, had become the process of rescuing us from sin and death. Even though we were his enemies, God extended his hand through the relationship of covenant. The covenants all required specific behaviors from the people in order for them to be in relationship with God. Uh, We call that today uh, setting our boundaries in our relationships. At Mount Sinai, when Moses went up the mountain to commune with God, God gave 10 commandments, 10 imperatives, establishing a healthy relationship between his people and God. Top of the list, love the Lord your God. First and foremost, our hearts must turn to love the one who created us, who maintains us, who gives us life, who sustains us. God required them to obey his commandments, to act in a certain way. I remember when I was teaching high school, every year at the beginning of the year, I would write a constitution. All the rules of, of the, of the um, classroom so that all the students, the first day we would read it together and say, this is what we're going to do and this is how this, this place is going to work. And I would have them sign so that they agreed and they knew. It showed them what was important to me. Now, <laughs> over the years, there were infractions. Every year there were infractions, right? Because why? Rules written on stone or paper, they can tell us what to do. But the fact is our heart is the driving force of our actions. What we want rules us. 
Now, I know some of you say, no, I reason through my decisions. Okay, yes, but your reasoning will always match your heart's desire. That was the challenge God had in giving humanity a new lease on life. God knew. He wrote the covenants for the Israelites. But what happened? Time and time again, unfaithfulness, on and off again loyalty, up and down, swearing allegiance, then running to idols, forgetting, remembering, remembering, forgetting. We see the end of that in our text. Israel and Judah are exiled into their enemy's territory. Now, this covenant in 31, this new covenant transforms those earlier covenant, the earlier covenant with Israel by placing the conditions of faithfulness to respond smack dab on God's shoulders. He says, in essence, to, he says, you don't have a heart to be faithful. You cannot keep up your end of the bargain. So I'm going to show you me. God tells them, you can't keep faith, but I can. So this is what I'm going to do for you. Because you matter to me. You are mine. I made you. You are precious to me, and I love you. Verse 33 says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Notice, the new covenant is not a completely new and set apart from the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai. The law is not completely done away with. Instead, God's law, what law God operates by his character, trait of faithfulness, justice, righteousness, unconditional love, forgiveness, gentleness, kindness, patience, humbleness, charity, and selflessness, all of that. Instead of writing it on a tablet and setting it before us so that we can look at it and try to live by it. God says, I'm going to write it on your heart so that you will experience me in your heart. You will know me, and when you know me, you will love me, and when you love me, you will turn from only seeing yourself and what's good for you. You will turn outward and look at your brothers and sisters and you will prefer them before yourself. You will be my people because you will be like me. And it's because of my faithfulness to you. Behold, surely the day is coming. You will know me, says the Lord. And I will forgive your iniquity. I will remember your sin no more. Divine amnesia. The only way that we can know God is if he overlooks our deeply flawed nature. Forgiveness permits Israel, permits us to begin at a new place with new possibility. Forgiveness opens the way 
for a new freedom to live in a relationship once broken. Why? Because it welcomes the offending partner. This new covenant makes peace between us and God. We're no longer enemies. Only in our minds are we enemies. This new covenant that is within us, the new covenant that is within us, is a relationship we live into, not a standard we live up to. It's a relationship we live into, not a standard we live up to because God gives us a new heart and a new spirit, Ezekiel 36, 26, so that we can participate with integrity. That's right, we can be faithful to him. Last week, the dean said faith is a gift. It is, it's a gift from God. That faith that we have is a faith, the faith of Jesus Christ to have faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't start with us. It starts with God. However, a gift has to be received. You know, I always hate at Christmas time when I haven't had a chance to see someone that I've gotten a gift for. And I love to wrap the gifts. You know, I love, that's a big part of it, right? The wrapping. And so here is this special gift that I've gotten for them. And it sits under the Christmas tree. And it's after Christmas. There is something wrong with having a wrapped gift under the tree after Christmas. Unwrap your gift. We're receivers. This isn't comfortable for most people. It isn't comfortable for me because we like to be in the power position, right? But we're not. We are not in the power position. We are asked to receive from the hand of God. Our power is in reception. And all shall know me. All shall know me. That's universal. That speaks of community. It speaks of shared memory, shared loyalty, and shared faithfulness to God's purposes. All know the story, all accept God's sovereignty, all embrace his commands to life. What a vision of God's community, his kingdom on earth. God has built and has planted a new seed of people. By sending a, a son, his son, to be a sacrifice for us. The good news is that God offers the gift of faith in Jesus Christ to save us from the cold, dark aloneness by giving us the nurturing life of his son. You know, it's interesting. Not all astronauts had the same experience that Shatner had. Ed White, the first man to walk in space, astronaut on Gemini 4, Apollo 1, said that during his historic spacewalk, he experienced something that he did not expect. He said he sensed the presence of God. 
Ed White was a devout Methodist Christian. And then there's Jim Irvin, Irwin. He served as Apollo Lunar Module Pilot for Apollo 15. He was the fourth, it was the fourth human lunar landing. He was the eighth person to walk on the moon. He was raised in a Christian home, but he left the faith when he, as he grew older, and he was not walking in faith at the time that he went up to the moon. He said on his moonshot that he experienced an odd and quite surprising feeling while on the moon. Quote, something that none of his technical training had prepared him for. What he felt was, quote, an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. He said, quote, almost from the time we landed and all the way back, I was acutely aware of a holy presence. When Jim Irwin got back to earth, he became a born-again Christian, and he lived the rest of his life in faith. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find a people who believe, trust, have faith that even in the midst of what seems to be death, destruction, and demise, a garden that seemingly is plucked up, right there, right in that place, a people who trust that God is working out our good, working to build and to plant his kingdom. Will he find a people who don't sit back and watch the work go on, but who are engaged in hearing his word of truth, even if it's a hard word? And who put their hands to the work that God gives them to do? Laboring together with their brothers and sisters in the field. Like today's gospel, will he find a people persistent in prayer for justice in the earth as it is in heaven? Whatever you're facing today in your life, whether collectively or individually, may you experience and know the holy, overwhelming presence and nurture of God in a life-sustaining relationship. May your hearts, may your hearts be consumed with a love for him. May your life be lived in persistent prayer. May you labor together with your brothers and your sisters, building and planting life amidst the darkness. And may your gift not be left wrapped under the Christmas tree after Christmas. Oh, man.